Coming to you via the internet and your friends at PipesMagazine.com, it's the Pipes Magazine radio show. The show is now available in pop-up book edition with illustrations by Alice Cooper. Now, I invite you to sit back, relax, the smoking lamp is lit. Here's your host, Brian Levine. Welcome, welcome, welcome. It is the Pipes Magazine radio show. Yes, the sometimes irreverent, sometimes educational, but always entertaining weekly pipe-smoking broadcast. I am your host, Brian Levine. I'm going to now call myself the heavily traveling man because I am back out on the road and currently sitting in the SLS Hotel in Las Vegas, Nevada. Yeah, it used to be the Sahara, so uh, kind of cool, kind of artsy, weird. I'll give you more details when I get back. Uh, right now in tonight's show in Pipe Parts, going to do a quick thing on uh, how to fix your own pipe if you got minor issues, so listen to that. My guest tonight is Regis McCafferty. Regis is a uh, pipe smoker, founder of the NASPC, and, and an author of several books that all feature pipe smoking characters in them. So we'll have Regis on, then a uh, slightly uh, truncated uh, mailbag because... I haven't had much of a chance to go through the mailbag, so we'll do that. Um, No music or entertainment tonight because I want to update everybody on the uh, pipe smoking cruise, so we'll do that then. Uh, In the meantime, I I also have a a rave at the end of the show, so stick all the way to the end for the rave at the end of the show. I want to update you a little bit on my travel. Yes, I'm in Las Vegas now for the Tobacco Plus Convenience Expo. It's primarily discount cigarette stores and uh, tobacco outlets and some convenience stores. So that's why I'm out here. On uh, Friday, I will be at the Paiute Tribal Smoke Shop out on North Main Street on the north side of downtown Las Vegas. I'll be there all day doing a trunk show with uh, Brigham Pipes, McBaron, and Sutliff Tobacco. So if you're in the Las Vegas area, please come by. Also, I will be in uh, St. Louis February 28th for the St. Louis Pipe Show. Uh, The next weekend, March 7th, I'll be in Newark, New Jersey for the New York Pipe Show. Don't forget also we'll have a special edition of the Pipes Magazine radio show coming up on uh, uh, International Pipe Smoking Day is February 20th. We'll do it the week that week of, so I've got a special edition of that one planned. So mark your calendars for International Pipe Smoking Day, February 20th. And then going all the way out into April and May, the uh, Raleigh Pipe Show, April 11th or 12th. Uh, don't have it in front of me, April 11th or 12th, something like that. Not sure I'm going to be able to be there, but we'll find out. And the big show, Chicago, the Chicago Land Tobacchiana Expo, the Greater Chicago Pipe Show, whatever you want to call it. Uh, May 2nd and 3rd, really May 1st, 2nd and 3rd, really the end of April into the May 1st, 2nd and 3rd into the 4th. Big time if you can get out to St. Charles, Illinois. would love to see you there. All right, everybody, sit back, relax. Let's get the show going. Thank you to the Sutliff Tobacco Company, and here we go. Meet Aaron, one of the most important people at SmokingPipes.com. In our shipping department, he's one of the cogs in the highly efficient wheel, if you will, that's responsible for making sure your order goes out right every time. Ain't that right, Aaron? I don't know all about that cog in the wheel stuff, but I do know at SmokingPipes.com, I take my work very seriously. Pulling tins of tobacco, weighing bulk tobacco, triple checking orders, and getting them out the door. Since it's so easy to order from SmokingPipes.com, you're keeping Aaron pretty darn busy. Look at him go, go, go. <laughs> in fact, it's been a challenge to get him to stop long enough to say hello. But Aaron doesn't mind. He loves his job at SmokingPipes.com. Why is that, Aaron? Because I don't just ship pipes. I smoke them. Gotta run. <laughs> just log on to SmokingPipes.com or call us at 1-888-366-0345. We are quality. We are experts. We are SmokingPipes.com. I'm not just a pipe smoker. I'm a Meerschaum pipe smoker. All of my pipes come from MeerschaumStore.com. They've been in business for 50 years, and I can trust that there will be no hassles. Orders are processed and shipped fast, and they have every shape you can imagine, including calabash, claws, dragons, horror, even a sexy series. MeerschaumStore.com, the most trusted Meerschaum store for 50 years.
Welcome back. It is uh, afternoon time here in Las Vegas, and I'm also guessing it might be check-in time, or I hope that's what the noise that I'm hearing from the neighbors is, because it uh, sounds like there might be something going on in there. All right, for uh, pipe parts. Um, so there's been a couple occasions where I've bought an estate pipe, or I've had a, where I've bought a brand new pipe, and it started to have issues inside the bowl. And when I mean issues inside the bowl, I mean like a soft spot developing or say when they were when the uh, when they were restoring the pipe, they reamed too deep. Whatever it is, when you're dealing with just a, a a possible burnout area that hasn't burned out yet or an in a, a, an inaccurate or in inconsistent area of bowl coating, uh, I've had this a couple of times and here's what I've done. And I'll use the uh, the J.T. Cook Pipes and Tobaccos magazine pipe of the year from 1999 that I bought on a super deal because somebody had over-reamed and gouged into the middle of the bowl about halfway, you know, about halfway down inside the bowl on, on the right side. Uh, what I did was I smoked a smoked two bowls in it really gently, really carefully, kind of like the... Kind of like the way I break pipes in, except not nearly as hot. So I did a, uh, yeah, I did a couple of minutes of puffing, stopped, did a couple more minutes of puffing, stopped, let it cool down. And I tried to smoke those two bowls all the way down to start a little bit of a cake going. Now, I was very careful when I was smoking this, this pipe in particular to try to fix that area. I was very careful to not tamp the, around the edges of the bowl. Because what I wanted to do was push the tobacco out to the edges and get that cake to build up instead of running the tamper down and scraping it. Uh, the other thing that I did was because I knew I didn't want a lot of heat on that exposed side, I tilted the bowl, tilted the pipe to the right so that that side of the bowl was lower than the side of the bowl that was good. And that helps move the heat away from that bad spot. If you're dealing with a pipe that's got a bit of a burnout, you're going to do the same thing, but you're going to try to tilt the bowl away from, you know, tilt the, the part that's having, a, the area that's having a problem, tilt it lower and have the good solid sides higher. That way the heat kind of travels up a little bit. But again, keep the tamper off the edge of the bowl because what you want to do is you want to hit a cake in there. You want to get a couple of bowls through, and then here's the trick. The trick is once you've charred that area and got a fresh char on it with a, with a, with a soft little cake, smoke just below that area inside the bowl. Start like four or five bowls in there, smoke just below that area. Because for me, on the first couple of puffs, on the first, uh, on the, wherever I start the bowl tends to build up a cake pretty quick. And then I run into that speed bump. So what I did was I just moved the top of the bowl or the top of the tobacco down below that to create that speed bump. And that speed bump in there, and this is only four or five bowls, so it's not a real noticeable speed bump. But that speed bump in there, when you go back after you've done that for four or five times and you start smoking full bowls, that speed bump's going to help catch and start building up the cake on that area. Be careful the entire time until you get that area covered and even with the rest of the pipe. Be careful the entire time to not get that spot as hot as you would the rest of it. So again, I bought a pipe that was a, a pretty nice fancy one. Had a really rough spot on one side of the bowl. I mean really rough to where I could f feel my finger divot in it. And I wanted to make sure that that side always got cake left in it. The last thing I did after every one of these bowls, every one of them, until I got it smooth to the point where I felt comfortable with it, was I didn't do my cleaning routine inside the tobacco chamber. I did it in the draft hole, but I didn't do it in the tobacco chamber. I left, you know, I'd scoop out the dottle out of the bottom, but I'd leave as much of the soft fly ash or the little ash as possible inside the pipe because I was really working at putting a brand new cake on there. Uh, now, if you've got a pipe and you just don't want to goof around with all that I just went through, uh, send it off to a really good repair guy. Have him have that repair person re-ream it and smooth it out or 
put in some extra bowl coating in there. Uh, you can also do stuff with cigar ash and start packing in that area, but I don't like doing that. I, you know, I don't want to put cigar ash into my pipe when I can put pipe ash in there and do and do it the way I've described. But again, a real a, a real good repair guy can also just kind of yeah, you know, kind of patch in that area with some extra bowl coating and smooth it, and you'll never notice it. But that means you gotta ship it off to them and wait and all that stuff. So there you go. Uh, if you have any suggestions, post them on the forums. Love to hear them. All right, in just a minute, Regis McCafferty will be with me. Craftsmanship, history, tradition. These are the hallmarks of all quality products. From the finest wines bottled in France to the most highly engineered automobiles manufactured in Germany, Denmark has been the one country in the world where craftsmanship, history and tradition have for centuries created the finest pipe tobaccos in the world. Since 1887, the Halberg family have led the pipe tobacco industry through their ownership of Mac Baron Tobacco Company and they continue to create the most sought-after blends in the world today, just as they did over 100 years ago. In keeping with their long history of providing the world with the best tobacco on earth, Mac Barron is proud to announce their newest creation, Modern Virginia, as a loose-cut version and a flake version. Bright and dark, rich Virginia tobaccos have been combined with just a hint of burley for strength in this soft and smooth smoke with delicious fruit undertones. As the world leader in flake tobacco production, Mac Barron is sure that this blend will appeal to the true connoisseurs of traditional Virginia flake tobacco, as well as those who like their tobaccos on the sweeter side. Enjoy the culmination of centuries of experience by picking up a tin of Modern Virginia from Mac Barron Tobacco Company. Available at fine tobacconists everywhere. This is Phil Morgan, General Manager of Missouri Meerschaum Corncob Pipes in Washington, Missouri. Our mission since 1869 has been to produce great smoking pipes that anyone can afford. We guarantee our pipes won't be your most expensive, but they just might be the ones you smoke the most. At Missouri Meerschaum Company, we don't just sell our corncob pipes. We grow them, make them, and smoke them. Missouri Meerschaum, Washington, Missouri, since 1869. This is Internet Radio. We are back on the Pipes Magazine radio show, and I guess uh, I've been on a bit of a kick lately because we had Chuck Stanion on uh, back in December. We had Ben Rappaport on recently, so I'm diving in again and uh, dealing with somebody who is way smarter than me and way more talented than me, but joining us is author and pipe smoker Regis McCafferty. Regis, welcome to the show. Well, thank you very much, Brian. Glad to be here. I, and I'll warn you, if you use any big words, I may have to pause and look them up real quick, but we'll, we'll get through look it. Them up before, <laughs> I'd have to look them up before I used them, so we're, we're square. All right, so let's get to know you. Where'd you, uh, where'd you grow up, and uh, what was your goal in life when you were a kid? Oh, my. Uh, um, I was born in northern Ohio in a small city, Barberton, Ohio, in 1940, so I'm an old guy. And uh, grew up there. Uh, it was a nice. It was a nice city, a nice town. And uh, I have fond memories of it. Went to uh, grade school there, and then one year of high school in Akron, Ohio, before uh, uh, we moved to uh, Columbus, Ohio. Uh, my dad had an opportunity to go into the hardware business there. And uh, so that's what he did. And uh, so I went through high school in Columbus. And soon after high school, uh, joined the Army. And uh, spent three years in the Army, two years of it in Germany on the east-west German border. This was back in, in uh, 59 and 60 in Germany. And uh, that was when the Cold War was on edge about half the time. So it was fun and games. Was that during the time of the Berlin airlift? No, that was after that was after the airlift. Um, that was that was after the airlift. But, but uh, we had uh, I had married right before shipping out for for Germany, and. Um, uh, my wife followed me by about uh, six months, 
And on, um, in fact, our first child was born in Germany, my oldest son. And uh, on three different occasions, things got so hot that they actually evacuated the the civilians one time. And in fact, they evacuated her and my boy to uh, the French border, some small town on the French border. And uh, but it was uh, it was an adventure and an enjoyable one, quite honestly. What did you do when you got back from the army? That's that's interesting, and and if if we can get into uh, to pipe smoking for a minute, um, um, in in August of '59, I was I was waiting to be shipped out at, uh, at I was at Fort Dix, New Jersey, and I was waiting to be shipped to uh, Germany, literally by ship, uh, eleven days. Uh, I was a camel smoker at the time, and I was also broke. I didn't have much money. I don't know, less, probably less than ten dollars. So I went to the uh, I went to the the commissary in search for a, a carton of cigarettes, camels, or something else even cheaper uh, to carry me over until, um, until I got to, uh, Germany. I had visions of myself being in the middle of the ocean and out of smokes. At any rate, I, um, when I got there, I, I saw this, they were running a special. Um, it was a Medico pipe. I'll never forget it. A rather large one for a Medico and two pouches of half and half pipe tobacco. Now, I, I had never smoked a pipe before, but my grandfather did. My grandfather, I never knew him without a pipe, mostly Kay Woody's. And he smoked Prince Albert. I remembered that. And I remembered how much I enjoyed the aroma of the pipe and how much he enjoyed the pipe. So what happened was I bought the pipe and the two pouches of tobacco that came with it and bought two more. And I think I paid 35 cents a piece for the pouches of tobacco. I'm not sure about that. They were cheap. But by the time I was at sea, about three days or four possibly, I was a confirmed pipe smoker. That that doesn't mean I didn't smoke a cigarette any time afterwards. If we were out in the field and we had a 10-minute break, loading a pipe and getting it lit and everything else was just too much trouble. So I'd, I'd smoke a cigarette. But... Um, uh, that was that was actually how I started to smoke pipe. By the time I was in Germany, I don't know six months, I probably had three or four pipes, uh, and that's what that's what got me got me started on the way. Now, with that with that pipe and the tobacco, did you have somebody on the ship give you advice on how to pack it, or did you just kind of trial and error your way through it? <sighs> It was just kind of trial and error. I had watched my grandfather fill his pipe. I don't know how many times, and and uh, so I I just uh, I just kind of packed the way I thought he had packed, and and uh, seemed to work. <laughs> so uh, uh, at any rate, I was uh, I was comfortable with it. I. Um, I had an opportunity to meet a uh, major who uh, on board ship who was traveling. He was retired, and he was traveling on a space-available basis, and he had an Irish setter with him. He and his Irish setter were touring the world, I guess, on a space-available basis. And uh, he was a pipe smoker, and uh, I was assigned to a job on the fantail of the ship, and he would come back to the fantail and sit there, and we'd both smoke pipes and talk. It was uh, it was really nice, and uh, and I I learned then to thoroughly enjoy a pipe. I have ever since. Wow, that's got to be the best introduction to a pipe I've ever heard. <laughs> Actually, I've, I've got something else that's even better. I, I got my first job after I got out of the army because of pipe smoking. Uh, do you want to hear about that one? Yeah. Yeah. What, yeah. What was the job, and how did you get it because of pipe smoking? Um, I I left the army in '61 and and was discharged and returned to civilian life and and the economy was slow. Jobs of any kind were kind of scarce. 
I had a family, and uh, uh, a friend of mine arranged an interview with the manager of a finance company. Um, and and when I when I entered his office, I was just uh, really kind of astonished to see all these pipes. He had uh, several dozen pipes and racks and ashtrays on his desk, and he was smoking one as, as I came in the door. And the aroma was terrific. Uh, I mean, I, I had never, never smelled anything like that before. And, uh, hell, I was so caught up in the pipes and tobacco, I didn't even remember the first part of the interview. And, I, and uh, finally, I just kind of blurted out, you know, that's a great-smelling tobacco. What is it? And he told me it was an English blend. I had no idea what an English blend was. <laughs> and he asked if I was a pipe smoker. And when I said yes, the, the rest of the interview was devoted to pipes and tobacco, and I got the job. <laughs> so uh, there are there are some real pluses to being a pipe smoker, or at least there certainly used to be. So you got you got the job. Did you also get to try his tobacco? Yes, actually, it was uh, it was uh, best blend by Smokers Haven, which was uh, which was a very nice lot of Kia blend. I had no idea. Uh, I, I I smoked just regular blends either. Well, Prince Albert, um, Sir Walter Raleigh, um, so forth. Uh, I, I had no idea what an English blend was. I will say this. I left that interview and walked the four blocks to Smoker's Haven um, after the interview and uh, actually um, bought my first GBD. Um, actually, I didn't buy it. I put it in layaway. I think it was only about $18. Uh, um, it wasn't much, but uh, I didn't have much. And so I put $5 down on it, and my first pay, I got it out of Hawk. And, uh, <laughs> and I still got that pipe. Um, I, I, I still have, it was a um, GBD prehistoric, one of their sandblasts, and uh, I still have it. And the only thing that's ever been smoked in it is uh, is English blends. So, and it's still a good smoke after all these years. So, not only did you get a job, you also got your eyes open to uh, to what would have been high grade pipes and high grade tobaccos of the time. Absolutely, uh, uh, I loved uh, Smokers Haven. As it as it turned out, uh, I was very lucky because I worked. Uh, downtown Columbus a, a lot of years. Uh, I left the finance company within a relatively short period of time. And uh, but then later on, oh, five, six years later, I wound up working uh, in an office uh, in, in downtown Columbus, and it was only three blocks away from Smoker's Haven. So I was probably in and out, in and out of their front door at least twice a week. And uh, it was a great place, just a great place. And all these offices downtown, you were, I mean, back in the in the 60s, it was perfectly fine to smoke in your office and smoke in the building? Oh, oh yeah, yeah. Uh, actually, um, I'm trying to think. Uh, it was it was absolutely fine to to smoke just about anywhere through the 60s and the 70s, even in, I mean, restaurants or bars or anything. And then uh, um, the, the company that I worked for didn't ban smoking generally in the office building till probably, I don't know, the late 1980s. Um, and then what they did was... Um, they, they uh, built a smoking room, a separately vented smoking room in the basement of the, of the building, and you could go down there and smoke if you wanted to take a break. I think that's probably all gone now. They, they, they've, we, we won't get into that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Now they're huddling out by the front door. Yes, yes. At any rate, no, I, I, uh, I smoked right at my desk, uh, uh, 
I had a pipe rack and half a dozen pipes right at my desk, and and that was probably up until, gee whiz, I'd say 1987, 88, right around there. Uh, It might have even been a little later, but not much. We're going to take a break right here. When we come back, we're going to talk about your pipe collection, and then we want to get into your book. So stay with us. We'll be back in just a minute. The Carolinas and the tobacco tradition have been woven together generation after generation. From the Blue Ridge Mountains to the coastal low country, it's an integral part of our culture and heritage, building our beautiful tapestry. Cornell and Deal is proud to blend our pipe tobaccos in the Carolinas. Our history with tobacco dates back to the mid-1800s, and in that time we've perfected a variety of blends. The Carolinas have given us the perfect backdrop to do just that. Whether you're a fan of the rich Virginias, bold Latakias, spicy Periques, or unique aromatics, we've got a tobacco that's just right for your discerning taste buds. At Cornell and Deal, we live all things pipe tobacco, blending it, smoking it, and enjoying the company of those who share our excitement. Tobacco, it's what we do. Stop by CornellAndDeal.com. Do you need a reliable source for ordering pipes and tobacco? Do you find it difficult to get your favorite blends outside of the U.S.? Fournoggins.com stocks all of your favorite pipes and tobaccos and ships all over the world. All forms of payment are accepted and orders are processed the same day. There are no worries when ordering from Fournoggins.com. Fournoggins.com is your source for all of your pipes and tobacco needs. We ship in the U.S. and international with no worries. Fournoggins.com for all of your pipes and tobacco needs. We are back on the Pipes Magazine radio show. Regis is still on the phone with me, and I haven't had to look up a word yet, so I'm doing good. Uh, so you, now that you're now that you're working, you start building up your pipe collection. Did you always enjoy the English pipes? Did you try others? Oh, I, I, I think I, I tried just about everything that came down the pike. I, I, I actually, I, I really didn't start to collect, uh, actually build a, a serious collection until probably 1987 or 88, right around there. I blame Barry Levin for that. God rest him. He was a wonderful guy. Um, but um, somebody gave me a, a catalog, or, or a whole. He used to send out a whole bunch of pictures. They were just regular photographs of pipes with descriptions and so forth. And uh, and I bought a couple of what at the time were pretty expensive pipes for me. But I I, I also attended uh, shortly after. I, I attended my first pipe show, and and boy oh boy oh boy. Uh, that was something else. Uh, and then in um, 91, I believe it was 91 or 91 or 92, I attended the first national show in Washington, D.C. And uh, by that time, I had quite a collection of pipes. It was uh, somewhat eclectic. I've, uh, I've often said, Actually, I collected several different brands in a series. The first one was GBD, and and I collected GBDs and probably had somewhere between 80 and 100 of them. And then I went from GBDs to uh, Dunhills and sold off a lot of my all Everything that I've collected has been it's been done serially. I I didn't. I didn't just continue to add to to what I had. Um, I collected Dunhills for a while, and then Sheratons. Um, sold off most of my Dunhills and collected Sheratons. Uh, I also tried to collect Barlings, but, but, but Barlings were almost as difficult to get back then as they are today, uh, mostly because you didn't have the Internet. There was... Um, you just had to visit shops or go to shows and so forth. 
and I also collected Costellos. And none of these, and none of these collections that I had, I don't think were any more than a hundred pipes. But at one time, I had three hundred and seven pipes. That's what I remember. I remember that number. And uh, and of that, there would be one specific brand be a collection. The others would be just uh, just about anything, a Duke's mixture, I guess. Um, Matt, but, uh, you were the first one that wrote about in the, I remember seeing it in the NASPC's Pipe Collector, going back to when it was just probably eight pages back then, um, that you decided that you didn't need all those pipes and you started to pare down your your pipe collection to just the just the pipes that you smoked and the be, and the best ones that's correct in fact um when i when i realized you were going to interview me i thought well maybe i should just count and see what i have i have 32 <laughs> pipes um, i have 32 pipes and of that 32 there's probably 15 or 16 that i smoke regularly the rest are just kind of, uh, they're good pipes, but they're just kind of change of pace. Like everybody, I have I have shape, particular shapes or sizes that I like to smoke. Um, but, uh, yeah. Yeah, we could, uh, um, I can tell you a little bit about the founding of NASPC if you'd like to hear it. Yeah, because you were around <laughs> for that, too. Uh, Phil Bradford and I... Um, went to the Washington shows together and we also went to the to a, a number of other pipe shows including the Indiana Briar Friars which no longer exists and and we got it in our heads that we wanted to have a pipe of some sort here in Ohio that was like the Indiana Briar Friars which was a very friendly very very nice show uh, well run and a lot of nice people. And so one Saturday morning, we sat down in his kitchen. He had a big butcher block kitchen table. And we sat there, and over two pots of Ethiopian Harar coffee, which Ooh. I remember very well. Oh, I'm, that stuff will grow hair on the bottom of your feet. Oh. Um, two pots of Ethiopian Harar and numerous bowls of early morning pipe. We came up with the bylaws and the rules and everything else, and we pooled $25 a piece and opened a bank account. And uh, we we also got ourselves a post office box. And I told Phil then, uh, I said, we're going to have a show this year if I have to pay for it myself. And we did, and I did. Um <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, we had uh, 25 tables um, at the Holiday Inn in Columbus, Ohio, and it was a great success. And uh, the following year, why we had 50 tables, but it was in um, it was in 1994 that the it started out as the Ohio Pipe Collectors, and in '94 it became the North American Society of Pipe Collectors because we had. Uh, by then, picked up members from probably 30 different states, and we had a few in Canada. <laughs> so we decided to change the name. So that's how all that started. Now, of those of those original 25 tables, how many were for retailers to sell their wares and collectors just to show their stuff? I don't think we had. Uh, I don't think we had any collectors just showing their pipes. Now I could be wrong about that, but I don't remember any. They were mostly uh, just uh, uh, fellows who had some pipes that they wanted to sell, and also probably three or four retailers. Um, Barclay Pipe and Tobacco was there. I think. Um, I think. The, the new Smokers Haven was there. The old one had, had gone out of business. Uh, uh, Joe had, had sold the business, and, and uh, a fellow had taken it over and moved to the northern part of the city. They were there. I, I don't re 
really remember any of the other, but it was uh, it was successful. I do remember that successful enough that we doubled the size the following year. Anyway, <laughs> and it's still been going on since then. Yes, yes, it has. Uh, it's been a been a great success. We've had a couple of a uh, couple of last two shows have been really wonderful shows, just terrific shows. So, um, so how and does, we have now? I'm sorry. Talk yeah. me talk me through. How do you go from a 300 plus pipe collection down to 30 something? What was your process of elimination, and how'd you get rid of them? Um, actually, uh, um, I sold. Uh, well, let's put it this way. I laid all I laid all my pipes out on the bed and selected those that uh, that I really liked and that I wanted to keep and and that amounted to probably well over a hundred pipes and the others uh, I, I uh, took to uh, a couple of different shops that I knew of that sold estate pipes and I, I cleaned them up they looked good and we we put them on the rack I can tell you this if you if you really have a lot of pipes and you want to get rid of them you're going to take a loss on them I did um, not not a terrible loss but but certainly a loss but um, but I, I just I really got just thinking about it and thought it was just kind of ridiculous to have that many pipes I wouldn't smoke that many pipes in a year and after that, why I just kind of gradually winnowed the the pipes down to the point where I probably had forty or forty five pipes back in I'll say I don't know ninety six ninety seven somewhere around there, and that just kind of gradually shrank by a few since then. But I keep it. I still buy a pipe occasionally, and still sell a pipe occasionally as well. But uh, but the ones that I have are are really really good smokes, older pipes mostly. And do um, you have do you have like a pipe for each reason? Uh, a smaller pipe for a quick smoke, a long you know a longer pipe for. Uh, and... I I do. Uh, uh, strangely enough, I I like. The Levat. I like a Group Five Levat. That's really one of my preferences. Um, but I do keep four small pipes, short pipes, only five inches long, uh, right on my writing desk because I light one of those and keep it in my mouth while I'm sitting at the keyboard and working on a story or an article or or something like that. Larger pipes get in the way. It's a kind of a line of sight thing, I guess. <laughs> well, and that's the perfect transition to how did you get started writing? What made you want to do it? Well, I've been writing for for years. I, um, um, articles and short stories, uh, just but it was really quite intermittent. And uh, um, I didn't back to college until I was 31 years old and uh, wound up as a comprehensive English major at Ohio State University and and although I didn't graduate from there I graduated from Ohio Dominican but um, my like I say my major was English and I loved the English language and I loved to write and so I would write articles I also wrote poetry and and quite a bit of that was published uh, over the years and um, but it wasn't until I retired in 2000 that I could devote uh, most of my time to writing I had been working on a novel um, probably since 98 uh, just kind of off and on, and the title of that one is Bugs, and it uh, was it was published, I believe, in 2001, if I remember right. But it was in 2000 that I retired and and really had the opportunity to 
to spend the amount of time that's necessary to do any decent writing. Um, and uh, so that's really when it when it took off. It took off in in 2000. Since since uh, Bugs was published in 2001, or it might have oh, it was early 2002. Since Bugs was Bugs was published, uh, uh, I've written four novels, well, including that one, and four novels, three collections of short stories. I don't know how many uh, articles and so forth. And of course, I write a regular column for the uh, NASPC newsletter. And I also write a regular column for the um, the uh, Canton, Ohio Writers Guild, a monthly column for them. So now Bugs, keeps me busy. Bugs was the first Hayes McKay book. You're right. Yeah. And it was uh, it was followed uh, it was followed by another um, also had the same the same characters Hayes McKay and Deirdre uh, his the love of his life and and so forth and it was titled The God and the Gold and that was written um, that was written while I was in New Mexico and it it deals with New Mexico and the, the disappearance of the Anasazi Indians and and so forth. It's uh, it's more of a fun read. It's it's little more than a novella. It's somewhere between a novella and a novel. It was it was not a, a real thick book, uh, but it moved right along. It it was a novel written like a short story, if you know what I mean. Uh, and uh, and if I understand it correctly, Hayes shares a, a hobby of ours. Yeah, oh yes. Uh, this is a, this is a, another thing. I, most of my short stories and all of my novels have pipe smokers in them. Um, I, I I don't know. That's a uh, just something I enjoy including. And I'm a I'm a pipe smoker, and I, I like to promote pipe smoking. And and I thought, well, the novels are a wonderful way to do that because one my my heroes. Uh, Heroes smoke pipes. So, have you gotten uh, any bounce back from publishers or from critics because of pipe smoking in the books? Well, no, uh, not lately. Um, bugs. Um, uh, people will remain nameless, but I had a I had an agent at the time, and. Um, and I submitted the manuscript to my agent, and about a week later, got a phone call saying that uh, the, the the story was good. The story had a, had a good premise, but there was just way too much pipe smoking in it. And in fact, uh, um, uh, it would be nice if I could cut out the smoking altogether. <laughs> and uh, and uh, I thought about that for about. 30 seconds and fired my agent. Uh, <laughs> uh, that, that was the easier answer. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, that's what I thought. Um, uh, but, uh, and then the book, the book was published with all the, the pipe smoking. Here's an interesting thing about that book. That book was ready to be published when 9-11 occurred. Ooh. And because it dealt with an internal terrorist plot in the United States, I had to go back and revise sections of that book to include references to, to 9-11. So the, the actual publication on that book was held up probably six months because of that. Wow. So, and, and your most recent book, The Nude on the Cigarette Case, has uh, gotten some acclaim. Yes, uh, yeah, it has. Uh, in May of 2014, it was named a finalist in the mystery category of the uh, 2014 Next Generation Indie Book Awards, and uh, that was uh, that was quite an honor. There are thousands of submissions for for review, and uh, I even uh, I, I got a telephone call. At, at the time, uh, at the time the, before it was published, 
I got a telephone call from one of the reading editors at the publishers who, who told me that it was the best mystery he had read in three years. And uh, so I knew I had a shot at an award if, um, if, a, if a reading editor thinks it's really pretty good. So I submitted the book to the, uh, the Indie Book Awards, and by golly, was named a finalist. And as I said, I, I, it's quite an honor for me. And I, I like it. it. It's based in Manhattan, and if I remember what you said correctly, your sister gave you a big compliment about it. It was actually my cousin. Your cousin. And she is uh, she's a, a freelance writer, uh, or freelance writer. She's a freelance editor, and she lives in Manhattan. She lives right in Manhattan. She's a very successful editor. And uh, she lives in Manhattan, and she, I sent her a copy, and she called me a couple of weeks later and said it was a it was a terrific book and it was uh, it was so well written and what impressed her more than anything else was that uh, it um, she said your 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 knowledge of New York and New York City is absolutely remarkable um, and and actually it's all from research or I'd say 95% of it is from research because I've only been to New York twice and and never really wandered around much in New York. And uh, so it was all all basically research. And if, if I could, I'll take a minute and talk about that. Yeah, uh, please. Most, uh, most folks, you know, you sit down to read a book and you read it in two hours or four hours or whatever, five hours over a week's time or two days' time or whatever it is, and you don't realize that quite often it takes the the author 400, 500, 600 hours to produce that two or three hours of, of enjoyable reading. In my case, uh, I probably spend 70% of my time on research and 30% of my time on writing, and the reason for that is simple. Uh, like the nude on the cigarette case, for example. If I'm going to refer to a street name in uh, in New York or in Hell's Kitchen or in the Red Hook area of, uh, of New York, which is over near the docks uh, on the Brooklyn side, um, if I'm going to refer to a street name, it's easy to look at a map of New York and pick out a particular street. The problem is that you have to find out whether that street existed in 1939. <laughs> and if it did exist in 1939, what was the structure of that street? Was it composed of little delis and shops or apartment buildings or brownstone walk-ups? And you have to know all that. Um, I really try to be as accurate as I possibly can within the confines of a fiction story. So it takes a lot of work. Uh, sometimes for only one or two sentences in a paragraph, and um, and I don't think I don't think people realize just how much effort goes into cranking out a a novel that's uh, fun to read. Now, the best way to get one of your books is to go to Amazon or Barnes and Noble or any of those places and search for Regis R E G I S. McCafferty, M-C-C-A-F-F-E-R-T-Y. There's eight different uh, offerings available right now. Right. That's correct. I, I also think, uh, I think Books a Million also has them available. So they might check that as well. And there, there, are, there are other, I'm sure there are other bookstores that carry them uh, or can order them for anyone I'd like to make uh, one one additional comment mm-hmm. about books. Um, I'm currently working on a sequel to The Nude on the Cigarette Case, and it is tentatively titled The Nude on the Postcard. I had very good luck with one nude, so I think I'll stick with another. <laughs> and uh, the second thing is I've had any number of requests. Uh, some, of the, some of the guys, some of the pipe smokers love my one character, Joshua Pitt, and I wrote eight short stories and one novel. The novel is titled 26 Days. 
I wrote eight short stories and one novel of Joshua Pitt, and when I finished the novel, I really felt this is the end of Joshua Pitt. I'm not going to write anymore. I just, I'm tired of him. <laughs> and, uh, and, and lo and behold, I'm in chapter four <laughs> of another Joshua Pitt story. So I'm actually working on two novels at the same time. Hopefully one of the two, and I'm not sure which yet, but one of the two will probably be out in 2015. And Joshua Pitt has got to be a lot of research because that's Victorian England, correct? That is. That's true. That's Victorian England, and it requires uh, an awful lot of research. Uh, I had uh, a woman he was uh, engaged to in one of the short stories. Who, uh, who is murdered on board a ship that's traveling from Liverpool to the United States, to New York. And I had her as a first-class passenger, and I had to find a book that made, or a boat ship that made regular runs between Liverpool and New York that had uh, first-class, uh, uh, amazingly, uh, any number of ships that made those regular routes didn't have any first class. They had a second and what would be the equivalent of second and third class. Uh, um, but they didn't have first class. As it turns out, the Arcadia had first and third class. So that's the ship I put her on. <laughs> but <laughs> it would, took some digging to find that, yeah. That would work out for some uh, some fellow named Sherlock Holmes, too. We will uh, wrap this up with the fast five final questions. No right answer, no wrong answer, just whatever comes to your mind. Are you ready? Yep. Go right ahead. What is your favorite pipe? Oh, my. Uh, I wasn't wasn't really expecting that. Um, I'd say the, my favorite pipe is the one I'm smoking this, this evening. It's a very old Sheraton Special. There's nothing fancy about this, but it's a, uh, it's a large pot, very thick-walled, and uh, with a, a plateau rim, and uh, it's the one I turn to when I just want a nice, pleasurable smoke, particularly in the evening if I'm doing some reading. And what's your favorite tobacco? Well, that's another good one. I'm just going to have, um, my, my, my favorite tobacco is any number of uh, Virginia Burley blends. I like Burley tobacco, and I like Virginia tobacco, and I like them mixed as well. So just um, any number of Virginia Burley tobacco blends. What's your favorite drink? My favorite drink? Uh, coffee. And when it's time to relax, is it a book, a movie, or music? It's a book. Always a book. That was almost a given. And then the final question, which may be tougher than the other ones. Uh, do you have a particularly favorite pipe-smoking-related memory? Uh, yes, I do. Uh, and if we have about a minute and a half, I can tell you. Sure. One of my, one of my finest memories was traveling to the, the 1993 Washington show with Bill Unger. Uh, and Phil Bradford and Basil Sullivan. And uh, the four of us got together and went to the Washington show, had a delightful time, and, and uh, I bunked with Basil Sullivan. Uh, Basil is gone now and has been for some years. But he was a great Sheraton collector, and uh, at, at he had brought an entire box of old Sheraton catalogs with him, and while I was trying to get some sleep, he was holding court in the room until 3 o'clock in the morning. <laughs> uh, it must have been 20 guys in that damn room, and and uh, and I was trying to get some sleep. I was bleary-eyed the following day, but it was uh, it's just a, a wonderful memory. We, we all had such a, a good time together. Um, I'm the only one left of the four. Uh, yeah. uh, Phil... Bill is gone, and and Bill Unger, of course, died a couple of years ago, and Basil Sullivan's been gone for some years. But they were wonderful people, and it was a wonderful trip. 
sounds like it had to be a very uh, a very smoky drive and a smoky room too. Oh yeah, I <laughs> I loved. It. I mean, you didn't even have to like pipe. I I was riding in the back seat. I could just sit there and enjoy everybody else's. <laughs> Regis, thank you very much for joining us. Check out his books and uh, order them and buy them and read them. Sounds good. Thank you very, very much for asking me. I really appreciate it. I've, I've enjoyed it. You're very welcome. We'll be back with the show in just a minute. This is Internet Radio. The year was 1849. Zachary Taylor was sworn in as the 12th president of the United States. The U.S. flag remained fixed at 30 stars. Edgar Allan Poe was found dead in Baltimore. Congressman Abraham Lincoln patented a buoying device, the only patent ever filed by a future president. William Bond was the first person to photograph the moon through a telescope. And gold was discovered in far-off California. And in that same year, also in California, Henry Sutliff founded his small tobacco company in San Francisco, founded on the principles of giving the public superior tobacco products for those with very discriminating tastes. Now, 165 years later, that tradition continues. Sutliff Tobacco Company has been setting the standard for pipe tobacco ever since. Take a quiz on our website to have the perfect blend suggestion for your tastes. Or just browse around to explore all of the wide variety of fine products America's oldest pipe tobacco company has to offer. Lots of things have changed since 1849, but Sutliff Tobacco Company's commitment to making the finest pipe tobacco on earth has not. Visit sutliff-tobacco.com for information on where you can find all of your favorite blends, from the sweetest aromatics to the richest English mixtures. Well, now, thanks to Regis, it looks like I'm going to have a, a, a another section on my bookshelf, the Regis McCafferty section, and that'll mean the pile of books that I have to read is even longer. All right, uh, because of time and because of the fact that there is a really cool bar downstairs that I really want to get to, and it's been a long day, we're going to kind of rush through this. No mailbag, no music. I've got a couple of things that I want to talk about. First of all, on PipesMagazine.com, if you haven't been there, Great article by James Foster. Many of you know him as Pie Lorns. Uh, it's titled, Dude, You're a Pipe Smoker. And it's with uh, a uh, Sergeant Terry Shepard. Go on there, read that, check that out. Uh, coming up this week sometime, yeah, coming up this week sometime, there is a uh, article that or a recap of Kevin's trip to the Seattle Pipe Club as soon as he gets around to putting that into words, which may mean sobering up and uh, remembering what he did uh also uh my buddy steve morissette's got a new article out there on coffee house etiquette for the gentleman smoker so check that out make sure you're also checking out all the other articles and forums on pipesmagazine.com on a regular basis i want to touch on this because it's been a while that i've been holding on to it but uh Listener Bubblehead Diver, better known as Ben, wrote me, and this is his rant. I was going to hold it for his for a guest rant spot, but I've been holding on to it long enough. Here it is. He writes, Brian, I want to start by saying I am a capitalist. Amen. Now I want to know how many American carvers can charge upwards of $300 for a pipe, any pipe they make when starting out. I thought there should be a graduation level after beginning to make pipes. I want to see American carvers become more popular, but at what point do I tell myself, buy one of the rookie's pipes and forget the pre-transition barling you wanted? I even saw online where you can pay $3,200 for a three-day course and go learn to carve with a new American carver. You need to bring your own briar and stem material and find your own hotel, but we will teach you to carve at a rookie level for $3,200. I'll add in there, There's that's a three-day version. There's a five-day version for $5,200. Uh, he goes on to write, This is beginning to become a trendy moneymaker for some. I just don't want the market to be flooded with inexperienced carvers, and we see a crash like we did with the housing boom a few years ago. Now I will sit back and smoke my Tim Thorpe Morta and listen for a response. Please post all your responses to uh, Ben's rant on uh, pipesmagazine.com um 
I've got a, uh, I've got my own variations on that. I think I've touched on it. I will say that, yeah, in a capitalist market, the value is what the person's willing to pay for it. Also, you have to remember that some of these guys need to make a living. Now, in my personal opinion, and I am the leading expert on my own opinion and warning, 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 we are going to get into my opinion right here. My opinion is that the first 50 pipes a pipe maker makes should not be sold, period. Unless they have previous woodworking and handworking skills already. And when I mean previous, I'm talking about guys that have worked in carpentry or worked, uh, we have a couple of them that are luthiers. Unless you've got previous experience like that where you've got an accelerated set of skills already, great, do that. All right, there's my point of view on it. You're welcome to it. Hey, in just a minute, I'm going to rave, and then we'll wrap the show up. If you're looking for quality, if you're looking for a variety, and if you're looking for someone with a reputation for nothing but the best, you're looking for CupOfJoes.com. CupOfJoes.com has hundreds of pipes to choose from and thousands of different pipe tobaccos. CupOfJoes.com is also your one-stop shop for Peterson Pipes, their exclusive line of Peterson Kelly Pipes. Check out their remodeled website at CupOfJoes.com and be sure to like them on Facebook, CupOfJoes.com. Quality products at extraordinary prices. Italians have always been known for their aesthetic passion. It's their birthright, their legacy. And just like Savinelli, it continues to grow and evolve. It is ever-changing. Milan, 1876. Achilles Savinelli set out to change the way the world viewed smoking pipes, opening one of the world's first specialist tobacco shops. From one small storefront to a factory that delivered handmade pipes all over the world, the legacy he forged became one filled with success and prestige. Achilles' dream is carried on today by his family, who continues the Savinelli legacy. Each year, Savinelli debuts a series of new, forward-thinking designs comprised of quality-crafted pipes shaped from some of the best briar in the world. Behind every beautiful object, there's a story. Start your own chapter. Visit your local tobacconist or premium online dealer today. Cowboy. Cowboy. For those of you that follow me on Facebook, you'll see that a couple weeks ago I did not have a wonderful experience with U.S. Airways. Well, here's my theory. If I had a bad experience with you, I am not taking the time out of my life to sit down and write a letter and fix your problems. So, I will hold off on ranting on what U.S. Airways did until I find out the result of what they're going to do for me. Now, I will say they did upgrade me to first class on this flight to Vegas, so I drank extra. Uh, but... Anyway, what I did do was last June, I sent a nice letter to Jack Roush of Roush Fenway Racing, explaining to him how nice it was to see that they were, uh, that, you know, that his, uh, his organization along with the American Diabetes Association and Eli Lilly were supporting Ryan Reed, a lower division and NASCAR driver, and they'd committed to him for a whole year. They've recommitted to him again. Uh... So I just told him that, and I also sent him a letter. In, in the letter, I told him how I thought it was nice that he had people of character throughout his organization, whether it be the drivers or the crew people. Everybody that we met and ran into was really kind and nice. I sent him that thank you letter. I wrote the letter, hand-signed it, stamped it, mailed it. Uh, fa go back a week here, and a week ago, or five days ago, whatever it was, I get a letter, a hand, a letter in the mail that's from Jack Roush, and it says, Brian, I just now figured out that I had not responded to your thank you note from last June. Accordingly, please accept my belated response. I have found since Ryan Reed joined our team that many young folks within arm's reach are afflicted and thereby affected by type 1 diabetes like your Samantha. Uh, it goes on to be just very nice and asks at the bottom of it that I send a letter to the director of the American Diabetes Association and the CEO of Eli Lilly expressing my thanks. Well, guess what I did? I did the same thing. I did that. I hand 
wrote letters, hand signed them, because at the bottom of this note from Jack Roush, it says all the best, and it is hand signed by Jack Roush. Uh, if you want to see the actual letter, it's on my Facebook page, which is Brian Levine. So go there, take a look at that. Also, if you're out there and you want to help out a little bit, it would be great of anybody that could write a letter to uh, the American Diabetes Association and Eli Lilly. The addresses are right there. Just thanking them for showing uh, diabetics like my daughter that it doesn't matter. You know, you still can fight through it. Uh, speaking of diabetes, guess what's coming up in March? And I haven't talked to Steve Fallon, so Steve, if you're listening, we'd like to do the uh, diabetes uh, the JDRF fundraiser auctions again. Last year, we had many, many wonderful donations from uh, Ed Green and Rick Newcomb and a couple of other suppliers that helped raise a little bit over, a little bit over two thousand dollars. Uh, so thanks to Steve Fallon for his help with that. I'd like to do that again. If you've got something that you'd like to donate, we would appreciate it. Email me Brian at pipesmagazine.com. We need to get that stuff going and into Steve by the first week of March so that we can get the money off to the JDRF by the uh, first week of April or middle of April. Uh, right now, I do know that I have a tin of Markovich black and white that was donated by Marcus Minettos from Greece, the uh, briar cutter. That tin was hand-delivered to me, and I've been holding on to it for six months now and have not smoked it. <laughs> Good thing it's an English blend anyway. But that tin will be in the auctions, probably $150 value. Anyway, if you've got something, we'd appreciate it. Always, always follow me on Facebook. Like the Pipes Magazine radio show on Facebook. Post any comments you got on the Pipes Magazine, on pipesmagazine.com under the radio show. Read them all. Next week, I'll get caught up on the mailbag. I promise, I promise, I promise. And next week's interview is already recorded because it is a pipe maker from Germany by the name of Niels Thompson, and he is quite a character. We had a fun time over last weekend talking on the phone. Okay, I think I made it through. Time to go down to the bar. So with all that, I'll say thank you for tuning in. Thank you to Regis McCafferty for joining me, and thank you to the Sutliff Tobacco Company... And until next time, Just sing a song and think about sunny weather. Happy Why is it that? dumbass host gets to go everywhere and I'm stuck here in this little tiny box.